Welcome to the podcast series from the Voices in Leadership webcast conversations at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You may also watch a video of this event at www.hsph.me voices. Good afternoon and welcome to the Voices in Leadership. Focusing on the nexus of science and leadership to create positive change in public health. I am Betty Johnson and I have the privilege to direct this program and to introduce today's guest. A reporter for more than half a century and a part of CBS News for 46 years, Bob Schieffer is one of a handful of individuals in Washington to have covered all four of the major beats, the Pentagon, the White House, Congress, and the State Department. He anchored the Saturday edition of the CBS Evening News for 23 years, becoming the chief Washington correspondent for the CBS network in 1982 and was named the anchor and moderator of Face the Nation in 1991. He has interviewed every president since Richard Nixon, nearly every candidate who has run for the office, and moderated three presidential debates. Mr. Schieffer has won virtually every award in broadcast journalism, including eight Emmys, the Overseas Press Club Award, the Paul White Award, the Edward R. Murrow Award, and the Walter Cronkite Award for Excellence. He was inducted into the National Academy of Arts and Sciences Hall of Fame and was named a living legend by the Library of Congress in 2008. He was born in Austin, Texas, and grew up in Fort Worth, where he graduated from Texas Christian University. He also served in the U.S. Air Force. Before joining CBS in 1969, he was a reporter at the Fort Worth Star-Telegram, where he was first the reporter from a Texas newspaper to report from Vietnam. Today, Mr. Schieffer is currently releasing episodes of a new podcast, Bob Schieffer's About the News with H. Andrew Schwartz. Before I turn this session over to today's interviewer, Dr. Katherine Baker, C. Borden Gray Professor of Health Economics here at the school, Please join me in welcoming Mr. Bob Schieffer to the Voices in Leadership series at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Thank you so much. It's really an honor to have you here, and it's a particularly interesting week to have discussions about the role of the media, leadership in the media, and the interaction of the media and our world leaders. So uh, I want to start with a question that we got from our online audience and that I'm sure is on the minds of many people here. Looking back, what role did the media play in the U.S. election and what role should it have played? Well, I don't know. <laughs> you know, because I think, I think we were as surprised by all of this as, uh, as I think that uh, most people were. Uh, I, I was here at Harvard last fall and I said at the time that I thought Donald Trump was going to get the Republican nomination because I thought people were very, very frustrated and upset and mad and I think they were just, they were just looking for change. What I didn't believe at that time it was that he would go on to be elected because at that time Donald Trump had made an excellent catalog, a really good list of what people were upset about. But I did not see at that time that he had proposed any realistic solutions to anything he had identified as a problem. And I thought by the time the general election came along uh, that, that that would become evident. Uh, what I did not understand at that time was that the core support 
that he had, most of his core supporters did not really take him literally. Those of us in the, in the media, I think, did take him literally, but they didn't. And, and the people I've talked to, there was a young woman on an airplane I was on with on the other day and said she had voted for Trump. And I always said, why did, why did you do that? And she said, I just thought he could change things. And she said, look, I never thought he was going to build that wall, but I did think he was going to deal with, with immigration. I think it was almost as if people didn't really care or believe what he said. They just liked that he was saying it and they thought it went to something else. We in the media, we took him literally. And I think that's why a lot of us were so surprised that it, that it came out the way it did. Well, that brings up the issue of the potential disconnect between what candidates say and what actually happens and between what candidates say and facts as perceived on the ground. And, and what's the role of the media now in a world where it seems to the outside observer a, a greater disconnect between things politicians say and objectively determined facts is emerging? Is, is the media responsible for holding them to account? Well, I, and, and I think we did. To, uh, I think we did as best we could and in the conventional ways that we have always done it. But what, what Donald Trump was a master of is what I call, uh, there's a, a political consultant down in Australia who later worked on David Cameron's campaign in the UK, and he had what he called the dead cat theory. Uh, and, and what he meant by that, he said, if you're having a dinner party, he said, I don't care what the conversation is, if somebody throws a dead cat in the middle of the table, you're going to start talking about the dead cat. Whether it has to do with anything else, you're going to start talking about that dead cat. And what Trump was a master of, he was almost a genius at it, is as the narration would go along and he would say something outrageous and then while we were all trying to fact check and, and do stories about it, he'd throw another dead cat and change, uh, change the narration again. And because he managed to get all of this exposure, and I don't agree with those who say that uh, we didn't challenge him, uh, that we gave him a free pass, we did. But the fact was he was getting so much exposure, it just sort of overwhelmed every, everything else. Donald Trump did something that seems so obvious in retrospect, but you know, as Sherlock Holmes said, everything seems obvious in retrospect. That's what he told <laughs> Dr. Watson one time. But what he did was he recognized that if he offered himself up to a number of television programs, he'd get on a certain number of them. And and that's what happened. And while he was on television just getting this exposure over and over, you had candidates like George Bush on the Republican side who were out there. He didn't declare for the presidency right up until the very end because he was trying to raise money for his super PAC. And he couldn't keep raising money for the super PAC if he declared as a candidate for president. You had Hillary Clinton running basically an old-fashioned campaign, uh, consultant-driven, don't ever put yourself uh, in a position where you'll be asked a question that you may not know the answer to. Uh, you want to always control the environment in which you're interviewed. While all that was going on and while all these old-fashioned campaigns were going on, Donald Trump was just out there getting on TV. And uh, I, I think he probably had the nomination won before we even recognized uh, that he did. His strategy worked, their strategy didn't. 
So, so you mentioned the old-fashioned strategy versus the new role that television can play mm -hmm. in, in campaigns. And then, of course, there's the new media, social media, Twitter, clearly differently used in this campaign yeah. than in the past. And that's a big part of it, Kate. I mean, we are in the midst of this communications revolution right now. Uh, television, journalism, uh, how we connect with one another, how we communicate, is totally different than when I came in to journalism more than a half century ago when we, every town had three television stations and generally a pretty decent newspaper. And that's where we got our facts. That's where, and it was on those facts that we based our opinions. Now, you don't have that many newspapers anymore of consequence and they're right up the middle of the country. Uh, Nico Mealy, uh, the, uh, who's the director of the Shorenstein program uh, over, over at, the, uh, at the Kennedy School, uh, told me something that I never, uh, never really realized. 2004, one reporter in 10 was based either in New York or Washington. Now, 12 years later, one reporter in five is based in either New York and Washington. There was some really great journalism going on during this campaign. I mean, the Washington Post did an outstanding job. I think the Times did, I think the Wall Street Journal did, but that journalism was not getting out to a large part of this country, and it's right down the middle of the country where these local newspapers are in such crisis. Uh, I mean, they're, they're going away because they, it's not about the journalism, they simply can't find a business model to support what it takes to have uh, a, a, real, a real newspaper. And that's, that's the problem that we're all in the middle of. Right now, in this country, we have access to more information than any single people in the history of the world. But the question is, are we more informed? And we don't know the answer to that question. Are we more informed or are we simply overwhelmed by so much news that we can't process it? And that's what those of us in journalism are trying to figure out. And I think that's a big part of, of, of this campaign and the environment in which, in which it took place. I, I, I want to just say to the younger people in this audience, and I think it's very important for you to understand this. Maybe you've already figured it out because you're smart. We've never had anything like this before. This is different than any campaign that I have ever covered in my lifetime. It's different than any campaign uh, that I know about. We heard and saw things in this campaign that you just don't see uh, uh, in the past in, in campaigns. It was almost like this campaign was more like a blog, uh, the thread of a blog post than it was like the political discourse uh, that we're we're used to, and, and that's not good. But this is the first time this has happened. They're not usually like this. <laughs> <laughs> that is both reassuring and alarming. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just tell you one thing, and I, you know, talk about things you never hear, and, and I told another group here earlier this, but I think my favorite moment in the campaign, it was not, this didn't come from Donald Trump, and, and it, it didn't come from Hillary Clinton for sure, it came from John Boehner when he labeled Ted Cruz Lucifer in the flesh. And then the Devil Worshipper Society put out a press release and said, no, he's not one of us. <laughs> it's true. You can look it up.
Well, <laughs> I don't know what to ask after that. But <laughs> I don't either. You bring up a really interesting juxtaposition of the concentration and, and shrinking of outlets of traditional news media and the amazing proliferation of other media sources. And one question that was raised by the online audience that leads into that is there seems to be a greater divergence in where people get their news. Yeah. And people now have sets of facts that look very disparate based on their political points of view. And is there an opportunity to try to get some agreement on a basic set of facts? What role can the media play or other leaders in trying to bridge the fact divide and then let opinions well, uh, be Well, that's it, Kate. That. You have put your, your finger exactly on what the problem is. When we used to have, and they used to, and we were criticized as the gatekeeper era, where you had, you know, uh, newspapers and, and three television networks, you, while you didn't maybe always agree with the editorial policy, uh, you generally agreed that what was on the front page you took that to be true, at least in the sense that you assumed that the newspaper and CBS and ABC and NBC had checked out this stuff before we published it. Well, that's, that's no longer the case. We are now basing our opinions on different data, on different sets of facts. If you, if you watch Fox News, you're going to get one set of facts. If you watch another, another uh, channel or another uh, publication, you might get a different set of facts. And for the first time, I think we are now, probably for the first time since the era of like Lincoln and all of that, we're basing our opinions on different facts and different data. And, and that's the part that all of us in journalism are trying to sort out and figure out what you do about it. And I would, I mean, I would just say this, uh, never has the term buyer beware been more appropriate or necessary. You simply can't get a true picture unless you depend on multiple sources to get your information. And the mainstream media, I mean, I think now, our, 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 our mission, we used to see it as, well, politicians are here to deliver a message, we're here to deliver the truth and find out if what they're saying is right or wrong, but we're, we're here to get the truth now. Our mission is not only to try to present the true facts as we see them, but also to knock down the false information that we're all dealing with now. Uh, I mean, you know, it's not so much that, that uh, we're dealing with news that's presented from a certain slant. We're now dealing with information that is totally wrong, and wrong for a reason. I mean, people put it out there uh, and, and knowing full well that it's false. I mean, I. I always tell the story about I was I was looking on the web and this has been several years ago. I mean it was actually back during the during the Bush administration when Condoleezza Rice was Secretary of State and I saw a story pop up that said uh, Bob Schieffer was stunned he had been expecting Condoleezza Rice when when Jerry Rice, the wide receiver for the Oakland Raiders, had shown up and. Uh, Jerry Rice had some interesting things to say about foreign policy, okay? <laughs> Obviously, somebody did this as a joke, but not all of the people who watch Face the Nation, and we like to think they're smart people, not all of them took it as a joke. I mean, I got emails, some of whom agreed with what Jerry Rice they said he had said, and some who disagreed. And that, that, that was just kind of the beginning of, of what we're seeing now. And, 
And these stories that have been floating around now, and what we found out as far back as 9-11, is it used to be in journalism that you took, if you made a mistake, you corrected it, it was your responsibility as quickly as possible. If your competitor made a mistake, you, you just ignored it and you let them correct it. You can't do that anymore. It's like we found out on 9-11, we would get reports after reports that there was another plane headed toward the Sears Tower in Chicago. We would have to stop what we were doing, going back to the same sources, and, and then broadcast that report there's a plane headed toward the Sears Tower is false. And then a half hour later, it would crop up again. Our job now is not just to present the truth, it's to, to try to knock down uh, these false reports. And sometimes we're successful at it, and, and sometimes we're not, as, as we're seeing. Well, that's an interesting tension between trying to be fair, which is sometimes seen as showing both points of view mm -hmm. on a question of opinion with equal weight, versus presenting two sides of a fact where really there is only one fact, and maybe there's uncertainty, but, yeah. but presenting both sides of a factual debate with equal gravity and attention exactly. is, can be misleading. So, so how does well, a leader Well, you know, that? I think sometimes uh, you talk about being fair. It's much easier to be fair than to be objective. We all have a point of view, whether unless we're on some sort of life support system. Uh, but being fair means presenting both sides of the story. But I think we have to remember that sometimes objectivity doesn't mean, for example, saying, well, Hitler was a pretty bad guy, but on the other hand, he did uh, start up Volkswagen, you know, or he did, did build the Autobahn, you know. It, uh, the objective view of Adolf Hitler is he's the most evil person in the history of the world, at least that I know of. And so I think sometimes we have to, we have to remember to do that. I mean, if something's a lie, it's a lie. And it's our, it's our uh, responsibility to, to say that. So in your own career as a journalist, have you faced ethical dilemmas in wrestling with balancing different points of view or in fulfilling different roles as the speaker of truth versus the elicitor of information from leaders you're interviewing. Does you, do you feel conflict sometimes between the hats you're wearing and what do you do? Uh, well, I think you just have to ask the questions. The greatest weapon that journalists have, the only weapon we have, we have two, our credibility uh, and and being willing to ask the questions and and being able and being willing to push to get an answer. And, you know, I, I think we also have to keep in mind that the American people are not dumb. If somebody's evading a question, that becomes a non, that becomes an answer. A non-answer becomes an, uh, an answer. I remember during the, <clears throat> during the uh, 2012 campaign and I was doing an interview with Mitt Romney and I asked him five times about immigration and what, what his plan was. And, and I mean, I have great respect for Mitt Romney. I, I think he's a fine person and a good and decent man. Uh, if he had been elected, uh, he might not have been my choice, but I would, have, I would have been confident that he would have been the responsible person uh, in the office. But I asked him five times about immigration and five times he evaded the question. And I, after the interview was over, I thought, you know, I just, I, I, I felt like almost like I, uh, had not had not done my job, but the next day in the New York Times, the lead of the story, and they wrote a big story about it, 
was that he refused to answer uh, on uh, on immigration. So sometimes a non-answer is is an answer. My favorite guest on Face the Nation was always Sam Nunn, who used to be the uh, chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee. And I would call him up and ask him to be on Face the Nation, and he would say, you know, I really just don't have anything to say this week. And I always appreciated that. He wasn't wasting my time. He wasn't ra wasting the viewer's time. And I also knew whenever he agreed to come on, he was going to tell us something. You know, he, he would have some news to make, which is, is the point of these programs. And when I tell these, you know, speak to young press secretaries and people like that, say, well, how can I get my boss on Face the Nation? I said, well, first, make sure he has something to say. You know, and if he doesn't, he's not going to look good if he doesn't have anything to say. And, and I think it's a good rule. But what we do is not rocket science. It's simply holding people to account. And that doesn't mean that we have to act like we're smarter than everybody else or we don't have to be rude about it. But that's the job. I mean, democracy is about, and this is important to a democracy, is, is having the right to vote. You can't have the kind of democracy we have unless citizens have access to independently gathered information that they can compare to the government's version of events, and then you kind of leave it to them. And, uh, and, and that, that's our job. And if there were no other reason for having a free press, that, I think that would be reason enough. So do you have any particularly favorite scoops you can share with us? <laughs> you know. A lot of journalism, and people say, you know, you got to really work hard, and you really do in most of the good stories, but sometimes you get stories just because you happen to be in the right place at the right time. And I guess the one that, well, the one I'll always remember when I was a reporter at the Star-Telegram, it was that awful, that awful time when President Kennedy was assassinated. And I was a night police reporter, and I was very upset that President Kennedy uh, that I hadn't been assigned to cover him when he came into Fort Worth to spend the night. 10,000 people turned out to see him. It's a huge, joyous welcome. And then, but I didn't get off work at the police station until 3 o'clock in the morning, so I was still sound asleep the next morning when we heard that he had been shot. My brother came in and, and woke me up and said, you better get down to work. And so I dressed as fast as I could, went down to the to the uh, just just as I got to the to the office, it came over the radio that he was uh, that he was dead, and you know I was just like everybody else. I I was just totally unglued. But I I went upstairs and was just trying to help him answer the phones, uh, uh, and it was a complete pandemonium as you can imagine. And and a woman called, and I I just happened to be the one that answered the phone and said, "Is there anybody there that can give me a ride to Dallas?" And I said, "Well, lady." You know, we don't run a taxi here, and besides, the president's been shot. And I was about to hang up the phone, and I heard her say, when the phone was about here, yes, I heard it on the radio, I think my son is the one they've arrested. And it was Lee Harvey Oswald's mother. And I quickly forgot that part about, you know, we don't run a taxi. I said, yeah, where, where did you say you lived? <laughs> And I wrote down I wrote down her address. Well, I had a TR4 sports car in those days, and I thought, well, I can't. It's about an hour to drive over to Dallas. Uh, I, I thought I can't I can't you know 
take her over to Dallas besides the top down was down and it took about 20 minutes to get the top up and anyway so I went to the guy who was the auto editor of the paper and in those days the the car dealers would give him a free car to drive and then he'd drive it and and then uh, write up a report on it in the Sunday paper these generally good reviews free car free gas you see how that works <laughs> so anyway uh, it turned out he was driving a Cadillac and the two of us uh, went out to this address and they're standing on the curb was this little woman wearing a white nurse's uniform and had a blue travel bag and uh, she got in the back seat with me and uh, I interviewed her and she I, I will say this without qualifications she's the single worst person I ever dealt with in, in all my career she had no sympathy for the president she did not ask about his his wife or his family all she kept complaining about as we were driving to Dallas was that people would feel sorry uh, for his wife and would give her money and she wouldn't get any money and she would starve to death. And it would, her, her remarks were so harsh that I, I didn't put some of them in the story. I had plenty of story to write about and it, 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 was, it was a big scoop. But uh, I just couldn't bring myself to do it. I thought, how would you feel if your son had been arrested for something like this? Make a long story short, I stayed with her altar through the day and toward the end of the day. When I got to the Dallas police station, I didn't tell anybody I was a reporter. I just said, I'm the one that brought Oswald's mother over here. Uh, where can we put her that these uh, reporters won't be bothering her? And <laughs> my, I was only 26. I, I, I've learned better. I've learned better, right? Uh, <laughs> but anyway, I, the, the Dallas cops thought I was a Fort Worth cop, you know, and so. We, we stayed there and, and uh, through the day and finally she said, do you think they'd let me see my son? And I said, well, I'll go, I'll go ask. And so I went to the chief of homicide and they did things like that in those days. And they said, yeah, we probably ought to do that. So we were literally herded out of that and taken down to a holding room off the jail. And I thought, my God, what, what's gonna happen here? I'm gonna get the, the greatest interview of, of my life. And finally a guy standing over in the corner said, who are you? And I said, what? He said, are you a reporter? And I said, well, yeah. And he said, you get out of here. He said, if I ever see you again, I'm going to kill you. And I mean, the way he was so mad, I, I believed him. <laughs> and it turned out it was an FBI agent who was doing what somebody should have done. I'd been there six hours. Nobody had asked me who I was. You know, so I quickly excused myself. And uh, that was blamed it on the city editor, which is what you'll always do. That's your default position. I said, well, I didn't realize I wasn't supposed to be here, you know. But anyway, I got, I got out of there. And, and, and that was the end of the story. But when people ask me, uh, why are you a reporter? That's why. I mean, where else could a young person have that kind of an adventure? And I've had one adventure or another like that throughout this more than 50 years that I've been doing this. And uh, I can't think of a better life. Maybe it wasn't for everyone, but I, I loved every minute of it. And uh, I, I'm, I always wanted to be a reporter uh, when I was a little boy and got to do it, which most people don't get to do. Uh, and uh, so it's, it's been, a great, uh, been a great life for me. And I'd, I'd love to end with one last question. Looking forward, what advice would you give to aspiring journalists or students in trying to carry out these goals during this transition period and on into the next administration and beyond? Answer the phone. <laughs> when the phone rings. Too many people don't do that anymore. I, I, my wife gets so mad at me because I, I can't let the phone ring. 
If it rings one ring, I don't look to see who it is. I answer it, you know, because, uh, and, and I'm really serious about that. I mean, the, the second piece of advice I would give to anybody going to any field, show up on time. In journalism, that means showing up ahead of time. People really do appreciate that. Uh, and then do what you really love to do. Don't worry about success. If you're good at what it is, whatever it is, whether it's journalism or public health, wherever you all are, are going, do it because you love to do it. And that will pay off and we'll all be the better for it. Well, that is wonderful advice for all of us to live by. And I'd like to thank both our studio audience and the online audience. It's been a wonderful opportunity to have this conversation. And I'd like to highlight for you all that the next Voices in Leadership event is going to be Tuesday, November 22nd at 1230, featuring Peter Staley, who's the AIDS LGBT rights activist who founded Treatment Action Group and AIDS Med. So this is a, another wonderful event that I hope you'll all have the chance to join. Please join me in thanking our guest, Bob Schieffer, for a truly illuminating conversation. This has been a Voices in Leadership production at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. You can find the complete video of the event at www.hsph.me voices. We encourage you to share Voices in Leadership.